for this. All right. So um, uh, hello again. Uh, I'm Pastor Mike and I'm here with Joshua. And we're going to continue the conversation about the, the paper I've written uh, a little bit ago called uh, Christian Epistemic Models in Sola Scriptura. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> this paper is available for anybody that wants to kind of get a sense of the, the background of the discussion. Uh, probably the easiest way to get a hold of it is uh, by typing in bit.ly, bit.ly dash Sola Scriptura Manifesto. That's probably the fastest way to find it. Um, Anyway, so just with that quick introduction, I'm going to let Joshua introduce himself, tell us a little bit about himself, and then we'll just jump right in. Good morning from Kenya and good evening to California. Uh, my name is Joshua. My wife is Ruth. We've been blessed uh, with six children. We have uh, been resident uh, here in East Africa since January 2007. So uh, we have a, a lot of African experience. I previously spent some time living in Papua New Guinea and India and uh, with my wife uh, in South Africa for a little bit over a year when we had a, a short teaching gig at a, a Bible training institute. Uh, we're missionaries here in Kenya. We work primarily with the Maasai and Turkana and Sembudu people groups. Uh, we speak the Ma language of the Maasai and uh, the Sempur language of the Samburu people. Uh, we're learning Swahili. Uh, I can mess around and read a little bit with Greek, Hebrew, and French. So while I would not consider myself a polyglot, I'm also not monolingual. And that shapes uh, not only how I speak, uh, but actually how I, how I see the world and how I interpret things. I have a, a broader view, as you know, uh, not being monolingual yourself, uh, you know, being able to think in more than one language and, in, and to operate more than one culture, it really broadens your view of the world in helpful ways. Uh, one of the most common errors uh, that we make epistemologically comes from the specific uh, epistemic limitations that comes with monocultural myopia or with monolingualism. Uh, and so uh, I hope with bringing that perspective, I can help, you know, broaden beyond what you would already have from English, Romanian and the biblical languages. Um, most of our work is with training church leaders, developing uh, local uh, language curriculum. We've uh, published teaching materials in uh, the Ma uh, language and uh, Swahili and Turkana. Uh, a long time ago, I used to be a chemist, uh, especially in quantum uh, mechanics form a level of chemistry. And I've been published in with some research in the Journal of Chemical Physics. And uh, my only other English language publication has been in the field of the intersection of uh, theology and linguistics. Okay. <clears throat> um, so were you ever a theology professor at some point? Maybe I misunderstood uh, what you said earlier. Um, educationally, my background is uh, I have an old school uh, master's of divinity. Okay. Uh, of the type that does not shortchange the biblical languages yeah. and had, had a concentration uh, in historical theology uh, with an additional heavy emphasis in missiology. And so my thesis won a uh, rarely offered uh, award um, uh, and it was looking missiologically at trying to take the model that we have uh, in uh, the Syriac, Greek, and Latin traditions of the church, especially how they interacted with local cultures, especially with uh, Hellenization uh, so in the Greek-speaking areas uh, of the Eastern Roman Empire and in West Asia outside of the, the Roman Empire. And trying to do the same thing with uh, Hindu philosophy 
and some of the the bhakti devotional traditions of Hinduism. Uh, that was back in 2000, and in uh, 2016, an editor had read my thesis and invited me to uh, submit a book proposal for revising it for publication. So I've been too busy to do anything about that, but it was a pleasant honor. Yeah. Um, currently, I am uh, one paper away from finishing the coursework of a PhD program in world Christianity mm -hmm. uh, under Mark Shaw and the great Andrew F. Walls. Uh, and I, uh, I, I teach in Maasai or uh, in translation, teaching in English into Swahili or Turkana because uh, uh, my levels of fluency aren't that good for those languages. Uh, and so I, I teach uh, missiology, uh, biblical courses, um, and church history, uh, primarily. Uh, I'm also uh, one of the two administrators of an African theology uh, forum that has over 1,500 members uh, around the globe, uh, including a number of... Uh, surprisingly big names in uh, the theological field. Oh, great. Uh, well, sounds good. I think you're overqualified to comment on what I've written, but uh, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Very good. So uh, the first thing I want to look at is on the, the second page of, uh, of your document, uh, you know, your graphic caught my eye. I'm a, okay. a, I'm a visual person, uh, and so layout and things like that uh, catch my attention pretty easily. And, and looking at the truth sources and their relative weight and, and theology, uh, and with what I'd read in the introductory paragraph so far, the, the question that really came to my mind, and, and I said to myself, I hope that uh, Pastor Mike really develops this, is what is the relationship between epistemology and uh, hermeneutics? Uh, you know, as you know, um, you and I could equally have 100% confidence in a given truth source or source of authority. And yet our theological conclusions uh, or theological systems that we build on that foundation could nonetheless be shockingly different. Yeah, yeah. And there's a number of things that can uh, that can go into that, including you know our presuppositions and so forth. But one of the major differences is having a different uh, hermeneutical approach. We we have the same data, mm -hmm. and we may share the same uh, epistemic commitment for how we can be certain about the validity of the data at hand. And yet we can come up with completely different, uh, you know, conclusions. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned that uh, I work with the, this uh, African theology forum, African Christian theology. And uh, one of the big areas uh, well, there's two big areas. One is contextualization, which if there's time, I might get on later, uh, you know, making something culturally appropriate uh, in a way that not so much culturally appropriate as culturally intelligible, I think would be a more helpful way to put it. Yeah. But uh, a, another big aspect of that is the question of hermeneutics. And so we talk uh, uh, in our field about African hermeneutics over against uh, you know, for example, uh, post-enlightenment-based Western hermeneutical models. Um, for example, in the post-enlightenment worldview, um, there's very, you know, little room for the supernatural. And you talk about that this uh, in the bottom third or quarter of your paper when you're talking about the scientific method. Yeah. Uh, that also resonated with me as a former scientist, of course. Mm -hmm. And um, with the scientific, you know, method, you know, you're only allowed to deal 
with the data that you can collect. But the data that you collect is only valid if it's reproducible yeah. under controlled laboratory yeah. conditions. And so the whole process of peer review and academic research, and we've especially seen this with all the research uh, uh, about the, the novel coronavirus recently, is you know somebody may have this paper that looks you know hey maybe you know this particular drug is going to be a miracle drug like penicillin for um, uh, the the COVID nineteen disease but are those re results you know reproducible yeah. and other can, can other groups duplicate you know the conditions of your experiment and get the same results. And so the press very eagerly picked up and reported on things that were initial reports <clears throat> that hadn't have been, that, that weren't yet, you know, uh, confirmed. And then it turns out that there were problems with the study yeah. and, and it couldn't be uh, reproduced. And so science says, well, it was promising, but we're going to scratch that off and try something else now. Yeah. Um, and there's not room for, for the supernatural. And so uh, later in your paper, you know, you talk about the key event within the Christian narrative, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, you can't, by definition, if it's miraculous, you cannot reproduce it in a laboratory. Yeah. If you could re reproduce it in a laboratory, it wouldn't be miraculous. You couldn't claim, you couldn't have the truth claim that this is the special interceding of God in history if it was something that just happened, that you could reproduce it. And so uh, very often the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a pupa, into a butterfly or a moth is used uh, as an analogy for resurrection for good reason. But it falls short as all analogies uh, are bound to do because it is reproducible. Yeah. If you get some caterpillars and you get the, the right kind of leaves for them to eat, um, a third grader can reproduce the, 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 the metamorphosis of the, um, of the caterpillar into a butterfly or moth. Yeah. So it's pretty special and there's parts of it we don't understand because if scientists cut into the, the cocoon to see what's happening, they stop the process. So it's kind of like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Uh, the very act of examining what's going on affects what's going on. Yeah. So, you know, or, or Schrodinger's cat, you know. Yeah. Uh, when it's in the box, you don't really know if it's a dead or alive or even there. But once you've opened the box, um, you've messed up the experiment because you, you've, you know, you've impacted it. So with kind of that in mind, um, I would want this paper to really explore the relationship between epistemology and hermeneutics because if, we're, if you're trying to build um, a sola scriptura approach where you mean sola scriptura, which, you know, obviously when the Protestants said sola scriptura, their sola was very qualified. Yeah. They, they didn't mean only, only this and nothing else. They meant uh, only scripture as opposed to scripture plus papal decretals plus the full 100% body of authoritative tradition, plus, you know, the commentaries of your favorite, you know, theologian who more or less agreed with you, you know, or, or what have you. Um, so you kind of ran through my whole paper in about five minutes there. So let me jump back to the beginning and, and throw in a, an analogy that I didn't use in the paper that I thought about a lot, but it just never quite felt like you fit in. But uh, I think I've used it in the videos, maybe. I don't remember exactly. But <clears throat> sometimes I think- I've watched some of those, but I haven't watched all seven. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing, but just slightly different. It, it, it's redundant, really, to go through both of them. 
So sometimes I think of this kind of like uh, picturing a garden that has multiple trees. Now each tree, as it grows, it has branches going in many different directions. But if you trace them back, they all go to the same trunk, which goes to the same roots. Uh, so epistemology to me is as if we're looking at the roots of the tree and hermeneutics is as we go up and we see how it branches in various ways. Um, you could in the same garden have multiple trees where the branches kind of overlap, but if you trace them back, you see that ultimately they go to different roots. So that's, that's kind of a differentiation I would make. So for example, in some of this, this, uh, this graphics I had here, um, I, I, use the, I use the analogy of a Supreme Court in my paper because you know, if you're trying, if you're coming from different perspectives and you're trying to sort things out, like you have a disagreement and you're trying to sort things out, if you have the same epistemology, at least there's some hope that you could trace your, your reasoning back to some foundational point and, and figure out where you're going from there. But if you have different epistemologies, you're ultimately just going to hit a dead end because the, the ultimate decision, the Supreme Court of your theology is different. So there's, there's no, no way to really uh, come to some consensus there. So anyway, uh, I'm kind of mixing multiple analogies here, but hopefully that paints a little bit. Preachers, of are, preachers are allowed to do that more than other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I didn't go too much into hermeneutics. I spent a little bit of time, I think, in the third section or the fourth section there. But uh, um, I wanted to kind of emphasize that uh, the starting points are different for some of our theological traditions. Yeah, and uh, I don't know uh, what your ultimate goal is for, uh, you know, in the final purpose of, uh, you know, this paper, you know, at the moment, this is a long essay, you know, it's not a, it's not yet uh, a doctoral thesis or, you know, a doc, uh, or, or what have you. Uh, I don't know if you, and, and I'm not sure uh, what type of, of thesis is, is required with, with your current program. With the yeah, so this, this is some not, of them have projects. Excuse me. I, I know that that some uh, some demons, you know, are very project oriented. Yeah. With a long essay that accompanies it, others still, you know, require you have the project, but then you have a full thesis write-up as opposed to a long essay. Yeah. So I'm not sure what, what your ultimate goal is. So, so this is not going to be my dissertation. My dissertation will be different, but this will be like a basis for it. So essentially I'm, I'm trying to put together this, this way of approaching theology that kind of um, organizes ideas in a way that is easier to make sense of, and it makes it, easier to, um, to communicate across the board. So when, when different people coming from very, very different perspectives uh, end up being unable to, to you know, get across their ideas to each other because of their background and, the, and different, different outlooks on things, this sort of, at least in my opinion, this, this kind of makes it a little bit easier to, to kind of have this conversation. Plus it makes it easy to easier to evaluate different perspectives and, and, uh, and say, okay, um, so one of the things I propose in the paper is to, to kind of think about developing some parameters of viability instead of thinking in terms of right and wrong, where, you know, mm -hmm. everybody, you know, there's all these different perspectives and everybody believes that they're right and everybody else is wrong. Well, well instead we can, we can create this kind of wider space where we allow multiple models to coexist and um, kind of go from there, so. Yeah, well, and, and I really appreciated the uh of that approach and, and moving away from uh, sectarianism. In most uh, Christian faith traditions, uh, there's a fair bit of sectarianism. Um, so in my own, in the Christian tradition in which I grew up, one of the, the, the mottos was uh, Christians only, but not the only Christians, you know, where the goal was to say, we want to be thoroughly Christian as opposed to being Roman or Baptist or Presbyterian or whatever. 
Yeah. But we refuse to say that those other people are not also Christians with us. Yeah. yeah. Their approaches are different. We disagree with them about A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And yet, uh, you know, we recognize that we belong to the same one universal church. Um, on the ground, there are a lot of congregations who have forgot the, uh, have, they've, they've changed the Christians only, but not the only Christians to, we are the only Christians and you are not. Yeah. And so, and you, and, and, and I've, I don't know if I can think of any um, Christian denomination that has not, at some point in its history, uh, exhibited that uh, tendency towards sectarianism. And so I really appreciated the um, the appeal to ecumenicity and you know and, and, and unity within difference and diversity um, that you were taking there. I've been thinking as you were talking about the model that you didn't use, you know, about the, uh, the epistemology being, being the roots. Uh, that works for me in part because while we may see a few roots running, you know, along the, the ground and above the, above the surface of the mm -hmm. soil, uh, obviously most of the roots we don't see. Yeah. You know, we don't see what they're doing underground. And yet if, uh, if termites suddenly you know, overnight ate all of the roots, the tree is going to crash to the ground. Yeah. Um, but I'm still thinking about uh, the talking about epistemology and hermeneutics in tandem. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, they're really, uh, th there's a lot of overlap. I think between between the two two concepts, uh, I mentioned the the, the post enlightenment uh, you know scientific you know worldview you know behind the scientific method, which as you point out has been really really fruitful, and for what it's designed to do, it does very very well, but it has a self imposed epistemic limitation yeah. because it can't it can't touch what it can't touch. Yeah. Um, in most African worldviews, on the other hand, uh, there is, it's, it, it's, we, here in Africa, we live in a much larger world. Um, Africans believe in the efficacy of both curses and blessings yeah. because they see the effects of both curses and blessings. Mm -hmm. And uh, a Western-trained scientist will argue that well, at most this is a placebo effect. It's because the person, you know, had a predisposition to believe in the efficacy of the cursor of the blessing that psychosomatically it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Blah 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 blah. Um, but that's the that's the voice that lacks experience. And uh, it's also uh, completely contrary to the testimony of scripture. And so if we're really serious about uh, a sola scriptura, where we mean sola, as opposed to, to we saying sola, but we really mean sola, you know, faith, grace, glory of God, scripture, you know, all five of them. Um, but here, our, our worldview, it, it's a much bigger world. And there is room to talk about spiritual realities, about something that angels or demons might be doing. Yeah. And it looks, in fact, a whole lot more like the world we see when we read the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, Western commentators often don't know what to do with that whole story of the witch of Endor summoning the shade of Samuel. Mm -hmm. Now it seems pretty clear to me that the woman was surprised. And so clearly there's a degree to which she was a fraud, like a lot of psychics that we have and what we have in America. But there's different ways of being fraudulent. You can be fraudulent because you're 
just lying and making stuff up. Or you can be fraudulent because you're pretending that one thing is another thing. Hmm. And so um, an African will tell you that this woman was dealing with spirits that were pretending to be dead people. Yeah. She wasn't really an necromancer. Mm-hmm. She was dealing with demons who were mimicking the dead people. Yeah. And she recognized that this was not the demon or spirit that she was used to working with. And that actually was Samuel because, you know, God had pulled a fast one on her and she was absolutely terrified. Why would she have been terrified if what had happened was what normally happened? But even so, in the American context, that story is really suitable for youth groups in the youth group meeting that's closest to Halloween. And because it'll get the kids' attention, they're like, ooh, creepy. But it doesn't really enter into any of our theological systems because our worldview isn't big enough to have a place for that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in, in some sense, some of the metaphysical perspectives that I talked about in my paper don't even include a metaphysical perspective that you probably deal with there in Africa. I mean, that, that could be a, a, a perspective all of its own. Um, you know, I've talked about some of the ones we have here, like the Platonic metaphysics and Aristotelian and, and some of the more modern ones. But uh, <clears throat> there's there's like an actual entirely different approach to scripture, entirely different approach to theology that you probably end up having to deal with um, in, in that part of the world. Well, the, and, and the other thing um, that I should really make sure that, that I have time to mention um, in addition to, to the basic, you know, questions uh, of epistemology, you know, and how, how do we know, how do we validate our supposed data and, the, and hermeneutics, you know, what's the, what's, what's the interpretive lens that brings things in, into focus? Um, you know, people with worse eyesight than me, you know, might have trifocals and, you know, based on which part of the lens they're looking at, a whole different area will come into focus. Mm -hmm. And if they're looking through this bottom curve while tilting their head back, they can't clearly discern anything that's that's a bit far away. Because, you know, the lens determines, you know, what the focus is and determines what data, you know, will be seen. Uh, So you have the the, the basic questions of epistemology and you have... uh, you have the basic hermeneutical approaches, um, which are in, it's not that I think you haven't been concerned with hermeneutics. It's, it's that I noticed that your hermeneutics were implicit. And for a project of this type, uh, my background uh, would find to make the hermeneutics explicit, beside, uh, in addition to what you're, you're already making explicit, would strengthen the project yeah. from my perspective. Yeah, but I, the I, third thing. No, no I was just going to no, say, go I agree with you. I think part of the part of the issue with, with doing that, however, is that I believe um, the hermeneutics actually, uh, uh, what will be a word, they essentially spring out of the, the epistemology. So uh, depending on which tradition you're, you're working through, the logic for your hermeneutics will be very different. Uh, so it would, be, it would have been kind of difficult to take the time to go into the hermeneutics where each of the different uh, epistemologies that I'm talking about, because I, there's a different logic to how it would work. But it, no, I, I mean, I, I, in principle, I agree with what you're saying, because it's it's an essential element of the, the interpretive process. And so the third thing, after the basic uh, epistemic questions and, and, and the form that the the grinding, if you will, of the hermeneutical lens uh, to form its focus. The third thing uh, is what questions are being asked. Mm-hmm. Because uh, theology is irrelevant unless it's answering the questions that are being asked. And so one of the reasons that uh, a lot of contemporary people uh, are very happy to completely reject, for example, the Nicene formulation mm-hmm. is because uh, the Council of Nicaea 
was very specifically trying to formulate biblical answers to the questions that were being asked in their culture yeah. and by their people. Uh, and, you know, if you had those same individuals and if they had the same philosophical background and if they were operating with the same, you know, linguistic framework, but you provided them with the set of questions that were so deeply concerning to uh, the German Academy in the 1800s at the time when, you know, uh, the school of higher criticism was being born, mm -hmm. the Nicene fathers would have given us different formulations. Yeah, probably. Because they would have had, because they would have been wrestling with a different set of questions. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's something that we, we have to acknowledge. Um, and so, uh, so that would be practical you know, theology. Well, cause, yeah, because if it's if it's if it's not practical, what's what's the point? And yeah. there is a point because practical theology is the building that we see. The less practical, as people might say, theology might well be the the infrastructure, yeah. you know, of the bones of the building that we don't see. Um, if you remove them, the building falls down, but realistically it's only builders contractors and architects who are interested in knowing what's there yeah the rest of us just go in and out of the building and use the stairs or use the elevator and don't even think about it don't even think about the physics that makes it work unless there's a disaster and the building collapses yeah that's it you know mm -hmm. uh when the 9-11 attacks failed the the twin towers in new york city you had all these articles about the physics of of the of architecture of skyscrapers and what might have been able to be done differently nobody outside of the field cared about that before 2000 people died yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so i mean that that is what it is but um well, it, it's my, important to rec i think my paper but, my paper is meant for the architects you know it's supposed to it is it, it is, and, and that, that, that's fair enough because um, if you don't have architects, uh, you have buildings that collapse. And we, we see that here in parts of Africa where um, for whatever reason, there, maybe there's corruption, people take shortcuts. And, um, you know, you have people, who, builders who are without scruples, who are just trying to make money and um you know during the rainy season you will have you know a six-story building full of people collapse yeah. and it and, and it collapsed basically the way you would expect it to collapse if demolition experts were trying to, to make it fall without damaging the neighboring properties mm -hmm. um so the architecture and architects are very very important um but uh Architects should certainly, um, you know, heed the questions that are being asked. You say that, you know, that it's a known fact that Greek philosophy played a key role in early theological development. And of course it did. If it hadn't, something would have been desperately wrong because that was the context. Uh, I mean, those were the questions that were being asked. Yeah. So they had to be addressed or you would have had proselytization uh, rather than actual conversion. Um, those who know me know that I'm, I'm rather fond, some would even say enamored, uh, of the work of Professor Andrew F. Walls. Uh, when he talks about conversion and proselytization, he points out that proselytization means um, you have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. Yeah. Uh, you, ha you have to adopt the accruements of Jewish culture. Uh, and, you know, first of all, in Acts uh, 15, the Jerusalem Council uh, ruled, that's not the way we're going to do things. And then secondly, in the middle of Ephesians, uh, you know, Paul talks about Christ breaking down the dividing wall of hostility between the, different, the two different groups. And it's really interesting when we look at the development of the church in the New Testament context, um, 
we see a shift uh, from uh, a Jewish context to a Hellenistic context. Um, and, and so you have the Greeks had to learn how to be Christians in a Greek way, just the way that the Jews had to learn to be Christians in a Jewish way. And that's repeated, you know, throughout. Uh, Chinese people don't have to become Romanian in order to become a Christian. Yeah. Romanians mm -hmm. don't have to become Congolese before they become Christian, you know. And we can bring our Congolese or Chinese or Romanian cultural questions. And as much as our epistemology, the questions we ask um, will help enable us to predict what the, the resulting theology might look like. And you hint at this in that the, the goal of your project is if we start with a really well-defined uh, epistemology and try to have and, and try to let the, the, met, the, uh, the metaphysical meta-narrative uh, use the term uh, macro-narrative, I usually use meta-narrative, yeah. they're similar, it's not quite the same. Uh, of scripture lead us in our reading it's fairly it, it might be possible uh, at least you're hoping to predict what you know what the branches of the theology tree might look like uh, but again a part of one of the variables for that equation is the questions that are being asked um, because you know the the questions that you ask of your data, obviously, it will directly affect the answers that your data can give you. If you're act if you're asking the wrong set of answers, the data will lie to you. The questions, the data will lie to you. But sometimes there are multiple sets of questions, all of which are potentially correct, and so the data will give different answers to those different questions. Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> I guess the, the, the question then here is kind of like this. Um, it seems to me that there's two elements here. One of it is the one you're bringing up, which is the questions being asked. But, but on the other end of the equation, there's the, the framework being used. So, you know, wherever we're looking at, in, whether in, at different points in history or whether at the different traditions we have today, people seem to have a framework, <clears throat> whatever framework they, they acquire from, from their own traditions. And then each of those frameworks is able to take questions that are modern, questions that are historical, whatever type of questions, questions that are relevant in one culture and, and or not relevant in another culture, and each of the, the, those frameworks has a way to kind of subsume that, that set of questions and make sense of it in, in its own way. So, you know, somebody coming from maybe like a Catholic perspective might come to, to visit you in Africa and interact with the questions that people have there and have one set of answers to their questions. Well, somebody coming from say a liberal perspective will come over there and have a, a whole different set of answers based on the framework they're working with. So there's this sort of uh, interplay, kind of like uh, uh, two poles pulling in opposite directions between the, the theoretical framework and the practical aspect of the theology. And uh, at least that's how I see it, where these two things kind of uh, impact one another or they, um, they kind of inform each other and uh, affect each other. So where are we at in the paper now? Are we? Uh... Yeah, so I'm, I'm going through to see if there's any really important things I want to make sure that um, that, that I can, uh, can mention. One thing, uh, well, this is around page 18 or so. Okay. Uh, so still, still near the beginning of the document. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, you talk about the importance of historical conditioning. Mm -hmm. And and really, that's what you were saying just now when you were talking about how if uh, you know a Roman Catholic friend from America visited me here in Africa, um, their historical commitment uh, to Roman Catholicism is going to function as a hermeneutical lens for them, yeah, uh, and, and change. And so uh, I would just I may sound like a broken record, but um, 
I would again want to, you know, you know, emphasize that an important component of that historical conditioning is is cultural conditioning. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not disagreeing. And, uh, I'm just saying that it seems to me that the two work together. So, for example, a person they do work together. Yeah, a person has a certain lens here, and they are addressing a certain set of questions here. Then they come over there and they're addressing a different set of questions, but because of their lens, they might answer those questions differently than, than you would answer coming yeah. from a different lens. So, yeah, I, I, absolutely. And again, I was only repeating it in order to re-emphasize uh, the the cultural side of things. Yeah, uh, you know, as, as somebody who is who has spent most of my professional life in either Asia or Africa, rather than America, where I where I was born and grew up and was nurtured and trained, mm -hmm. um, I've learned um, how very important, you know, culture is. And, um, you know, a lot of times, um, well, with the training that I did when I was just a college student uh, before doing an internship in Papua New Guinea, um, a mantra that we learned was, um, it's not wrong, it, it, it's, it's just different. Yeah. So that we don't come in, you know, with our Western worldview and ways of thinking and, you know, walk all over everybody who thinks, you know, differently. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes you can, you know, you can conclude, well, this, this thing right here, this is both different and wrong. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, it, it's, it's important where we draw those lines and some things are, are different, maybe a little unpalatable to our taste, but still, but still not wrong. Um, you know, coming out of that, uh, and, re and related to that, uh, on page twenty-one, um, you know, you you observe that uh, throughout history, the educated class at any given time usually held to only one metaphysical uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. um, I would want to make that you know more you know more more specific that throughout history. In any given uh, geocultural area, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, that that holds because obviously, you know, the, the educated class of Western Europe in the 14th century was pretty uniform, and is also completely different from the educated class of the the, the Greek-speaking educated uh, Romans whose first language was Latin in the second century. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and, and so. You know, again, the the the, the culture, you know, uh, matters there. <clears throat> um, okay, just glancing quickly at my notes uh, to see what things I'll just am, am happy to to let you read, and uh, which things I would really want to make sure to. Uh, to discuss. Um, so uh, oh, that one, I think, doesn't really need discussion. Um, so one thing that, uh, in particular, um, so uh, on, on page twenty-five, you talk about, you know, uh, you know, given the raw materials the Greek philosophers had to work with, it is impressive what they were able to accomplish. Uh, and then you, you, then you return to the idea of how many Christians, you know, uh, would regard that Greek philosophy as a form of general revelation, or at least a conduit through which you can find general revelation here or there, yeah. or natural theology, natural yeah. law. Um, or you know, uh, you know, uh, a pedagogue for the Greeks mm -hmm. was was the term that people like Justin Martyr used. Um, and you discuss this a little uh, more further below. But at that point, you know, the question that I was asking uh, for this uh, epistemic project is, you know, you know, to what degree does natural revelation exist? You know, of course, a hardcore secular scientist will say, not at all. Um, a committed Christian 
who's also a hardcore scientist, very often will say that, well, it does exist. And it's meaningful to them, you know, on the weekends. But when they're at work, they function as if it as if it doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, for uh, a sola scriptura epistemology, if we're going to take it really seriously, you know, I think we have to ask: um, Was Justin Martyr correct in adopting the language of uh, Fermatikas Lagos? From the Stoics mm -hmm. uh, and, and saying, well, yeah, they were onto something, but we need to make that we need to make the lambda and that logos a capital logos because <laughs> it because it's really it's it's really Christ. Um, you know, is the is the thesis in missiologist uh, Don Richardson's Eternity in Their Hearts? Uh, is it you know talking about the redemptive analogy? You know, is that le legitimate or appealing to Romans? Uh, the first chapter, um, did God in fact leave for God's self a witness in the world? Yeah. And um, and so you've done a really good job, I think, analyzing the the, uh, the historical uh, you know perspective of how things developed. But for a sola scriptura uh, approach, you know that that's a question that that really needs needs to be addressed. Now, uh, does it, it's a question for me, does that need to be addressed um, kind of at the front end or does it need to be addressed midway through when having laid the epistemic foundation, you're trying to ferret out just what the scriptural, you know, metaphysics is. Yeah, yeah. so just to, to kind of give a very quick synopsis uh, because I didn't really discuss that in the paper, but as you trace the, even, even the, the definition of general revelation philosophically throughout history, uh, when Christians had a, a, a Platonic bent, they view general revelation as coming through the through reason. So because of the, Optimism. yeah, because the world was more of a shadow of things, it was the mind and the thinking, the mathematics and all these things that gave us a picture of God and a picture of ultimate reality. And then as you move towards uh, the, Aristotelian phase of human history after after Aquinas and, and you know that side of history, then it's it's coming through through the natural world and it's coming through through empirical study. Um, the liberal side of it kind of merged the two, I think, where like things are both natural and supernatural at the same time, and it's almost like a panentheistic perspective, at least as I see it. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I'd like to talk to somebody coming from the liberal perspective and see how they explain it. Um, it, within the sola scriptura paradigm, as I understand it, uh, general revelation um, is not God revealing things in nature or in human reason itself, but using these things to give individuals revelation. And I don't know how to say it quickly and still have it make sense, but just to give you an example, uh, let's say somebody, you know, some person is going through their life minding their own business and then they come to a, a point where they start to think about eternal things and wonder why they're here and what's going on uh, god could use something like a natural disaster or some kind of family crisis or he could use you know the person might be out for a walk and, and they see a beautiful sunset god can use nature or he could use emotion or he could use mm -hmm. all these things to impress the individual so that they're more receptive to the holy spirit but the revelation is not imprinted in these things the way Aquinas might might look at something and say, okay, here's some aspect of the natural world and God is teaching us something through this thing directly. So I don't know if that difference makes a lot of sense as I'm explaining it in like 30 seconds, but that's one difference that I see between like the the sola scriptura methodology or the, the metaphysics versus some of the other traditional metaphysics. And like like the uh, the Platonist, or uh, I suppose uh, more specifically uh, the influence of Neoplatonism mm -hmm. um, through uh, Plotinus, Origen, and especially Pseudo uh, Dionysius in the medieval period, um, in the Enlightenment area, uh, and then in the philosophy of uh, people like John Locke, 
you know, mm-hmm. coming out of the Enlightenment, uh, really impacted, especially English language, uh, English speaking Christianity, where, you know, reason, reason is king. And so you have in the, in the 1800s uh, in America, you had many new denominational groups develop, all of which uh, as a core value, they were, they were restorationist. Mm-hmm. And what they were choosing to, to restore uh, for their view of a New Testament Christianity uh, would, would, would differ. Uh, their methodology for how they would go about that um, was was different, and the results were amazing, was, were are shockingly diverse. But there there was a common shared uh, root epistemology that you know um, you know we can reuse reason and logic, and all of us can you know have the same commonsensical interpretation. And so if we, if we get, a, if we just set aside all of the traditional understandings, they were really trying to do what you were doing and to have a pure sola scriptura, you know, approach to theology and, uh, and to do away with the, the, in some ways, sola fide, sola gratia. Uh, and, um, and to, and to do what, what you're trying to do in a, in, a, in a sola scriptura where sola really does mean only uh, and, and reason. So really they had two solas, uh, sola scriptura and, and sola ratio. <laughs> um, and, and, but their project, their project failed um, of its intended purpose at least because their vision for what this restored newly, you know, finishing what the Reformation started um, yielded, you know, denominations that not only culturally, but theologically look very, very different from each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I wanted to just qualify something there because um, you know, we use the, the, the term reason um, as, as a collective term when in fact, I think it covers two areas. Um, so in, in, the, in the basic sense, reason is, is something that's inevitable. I mean, we cannot have a conversation without having some kind of logical sense to what we're saying and how, to, how we make our arguments and how we work through things. So, so there is sort of a, a basic level at which reason is inevitable for, for everyone, no matter how we do things. Um, I think the way the, the phrase reason is used in theology has more to do with um, the idea that you could use reason to, to dig deeper beyond the, the basics of you know, everyday life into the actual metaphysics. So, so you, know, you have people trying to to kind of logically work their way backwards and figure out what ultimate reality is like using reason. So it kind of extends, you know, reason could be understood in more than one, one way. Uh, just to kind of qualify what you're saying there. Yeah. Because... yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. And, and, and I realize that, that our time slot is, uh, is nearing the end. Yeah. Um, but you know, you use the phrase, you know, different different forms of reason. Uh, I want to do a little bit of a tangent off of that, um, and uh, I, I've had some some pretty robust uh, debates with people and, and talking about you know what is what is logical and what is logic. And for a lot of Americans, um, logic only is. Uh, Aristotelian syllogistic logic mm-hmm. and everything else is absolutely illogical and um, it's uh, to me that's uh, actually a little bit uh, a little bit laughable um, because uh, you know if you've if you have experience outside of one culture, 
you you know that you know that's not true yeah, yeah. um and so when i was uh so in seminary and and, and working on my my mdiv degree uh, one of the books that i read uh had a title something along the lines of the the logics of india hmm. and there was an s after logic because there were different systems of logic yeah that developed in the ancient Sanskritic tradition absolutely as robust as anything that we have from uh, Pythagoras or Plato or Aristotle, mm-hmm. um, but, but really, really different. And uh, in the missiological work that I've done, you know, I've noticed that um, classical Buddhism is incredibly logical yeah i mean its logic is absolutely watertight it's not aristotelian western logic but it's watertight uh the problem with it from my view is that its premises are flawed and it doesn't matter how good your logic is if your premises are flawed you know um your starting point is wrong, you're gonna end up with wrong conclusions. And, and I think that we find that in Buddhism. Uh, but then also when my wife and I first moved as newlyweds to South Africa in 2000, there were aspects of, um, you know, broader African culture, obviously, you know, South African, Congo, Kenya are all very different, but they have a lot of similarities mm-hmm. just like, the different, just like, you know, Italy, Northern Germany, France, Scotland, Ireland, New Jersey, and California had perhaps more similarities and differences from a common heritage. Um, and th- there were aspects of African life and culture, especially when it comes to resource management, hmm. that made absolutely no sense to me at all. I was like, why didn't God send me to India? where I might disagree with people, but I understand the logic and it makes sense. <laughs> you know, or China, I, I can I, I can handle Confucianism. It, it it works for me, it makes sense, it's logical. You know, it's as logical to me as Marcus Aurelius is. He's one of my favorite Latin authors. But um, I later, after, after we'd lived in Kenya for about four years, I stumbled, uh, you know, across a little book called African Friends and Mother. And Money Matters, uh, written by an anthropo- a Christian anthropologist, um, and that kind of opened up. And I was like, oh, wow, this is absolutely 100% logical and reasonable. Mm-hmm. When people build their, uh, their little uh, vegetable or fruit stalls on the sidewalk all the way up to the curb, and it seems absolutely stupid to my American mind. It makes 100%, it makes sense. Because yeah. I understand the logic now. Yeah. And so, um, so because there are different cultures and, and different linguistic settings can actually have different logical structures. And when you understand the deep epistemology that's underneath it, number one and number two when you understand the questions that are being asked um then it's like oh i get it this makes sense now (laughs) well joshua i know uh i don't want to keep you over uh what we discussed as far as time so do you have any closing thoughts for us or um did you cover most of the things you wanted to cover uh, there's one other thing. I can't remember if I included this in the notes or not. And so I'll mention it just in case I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's the questions of, uh, in terms of epistemology, what do we do with purported dreams and visions? Okay. Um, on the margins of, uh, of the Christian world, in places like Iraq, and Afghanistan, there are scores and sometimes hundreds of people who are coming to Christ 
because of dreams and visions. Yeah. Where they report uh, Jesus appearing to them and talking to them, and obviously in their local language. Um, and um, that's data that the post-enlightenment scientific method doesn't really know what to do with. Yeah. They're like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, um, um, I briefly and, 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 brought that up in, in, in a footnote, I think, in my paper, just because like, from within an academic context, those things are kind of intangibles. You know, you can't really discuss them the way I discuss some of the other approaches, but they're there. And there's, I mean, the, the Pentecostal tradition depends heavily on, on, on the miraculous, so. The Pentecostal traditions do. And in Africa and Asia, even the non-Pentecostal traditions do as well. Yeah. Because it's, again, it's a part of their broad, you know, uh, review. And I mean, uh, in terms of, there have been times when uh, I'm not, uh, uh, I, I don't belong to the Pentecostal tradition myself. But I'm also not a cessationist. Mm -hmm. And um, at the bottom of the, of the hill of the dirt road we live on, you know, where we come to a paved road, when we need to go to the city, we turn left if, if we, uh, because we can still get there if we turn right. It's just going to take an extra hour. Yeah. So why would you do that? Yeah. Uh, there have been times when I, my left turn signal is on and I'm at the bottom of my hill. And I have just felt a strong compulsion to turn right hmm. and go the long way. And I've done that. I've listened to that. And then I've learned that had I gone left the way that I usually go, I would have been in the middle of, of, of the congested market center of uh, Ngong town um, when a riot erupted. Wow with uh, people burning tires, throwing rocks at vehicles. And, um, and so epistemologically, what do you do with that? How did I know that I shouldn't go, go left? It, it's, I mean, it's certainly an intangible, but, um, you know, it's, I mean, you know, if you check the timeline, which we did when we still remembered, you know, the times, we would have been, midway through the market area when it erupted and we would have been stuck yeah yeah uh blocked on both sides and, and who knows we, we might not have even survived um and so um my epistemology has to find something to do with that with that data yeah because um there are that that wasn't that wasn't a one-off occasion. Yeah, things like that have happened while we've lived here. Um, you know, at least five times, mm -hmm. five specific times that I can think of, mm -hmm. and um, you know, uh, and, and and each time by listening to whatever it was I was hearing, go right, don't go left. Um, it has literally kept my family out of a out of a dangerous situation. Yeah. Um, and so uh, my epistemology um, has to do something with that. Yeah. And you know, from a solar scriptura approach, and I'll close with this. Um, there's that lovely verse in in the in the old Old Testament. And I, my wife would remember the reference, but I, I don't remember at the moment. That says, you know, you will hear, you know, a voice behind you saying, you know, go to the left, go to the right. This is the way, walk in it. Yeah. yeah. And so when I read through, not just my favorite chapter of Romans or John, but the whole book, Genesis to Revelation, including all that obscure stuff in the Old Testament, um, a sola scriptura place indicates that uh, my epistemology and my very worldview should be a bit broader mm -hmm. than uh, what it was when I was, you know, growing up in an American public elementary school. Yeah.
Well, uh, Josh, thank you so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed uh, talking and uh, it's exciting to yeah, me too. be able to have a face-to-face -face conversation on the other side of the world. You know, I mean, we <laughs> if it wasn't for the pandemic, we might never have, uh, this might never have caught on really. But um, yeah, the, the, the technology is wonderful on the days that it works. Yeah. All right, well, thanks a lot. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, be in touch about other things in the future if anything comes up. Like yeah, very good. I'll, I'll, I'll send you an email uh, attaching the, the document with my notes for you to, to look at and do what you, you, you want. Um, if you want to uh, correspond on any of the points that I've mentioned, uh, I'd be happy to. I've also listed a number of um, uh, secondary sources that could potentially strengthen your argument if you had the time to incorporate them. Yeah. So I realize that everything has limitations of scope always affected. There's always more we could say. Yeah, I really, I really appreciate that. Let me start the recording and then we'll uh, um, just uh, say our goodbyes.